0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. I'm your host, Joel Brown, and today I have a very inspirational man by the name of Adam Braun on the line, who has gone from Wall Street to world change from his award-winning for-purpose organization called Pencils of Promise. Now, Adam has this organization that has built over 320-plus schools in disadvantaged areas around the world, and his book, The Promise of a Pencil. How an ordinary person can create extraordinary change is a New York Times bestseller, and it's sitting on my bookshelf right now. I absolutely love this book, and I know at one point this book even uh, received the number one best-selling business book award as well. So, Adam, congrats on all the amazing awesomeness that you bring to the world and what thank you've achieved you. so far, man. It's it's absolutely amazing. So, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. Thank you, thank you. A pleasure to be a part of it. Beautiful, man. So. I'd love to start the uh, podcast uh, interview off with just a, a quick rundown on how you started Pencils of Promise, just to give the audience an idea of how it started. I mean, they can pick up the book, no doubt, but yeah, just getting into like how it all came together in the beginning.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, my, my background was um, kind of unexpected that I would end up where I'm at now, but I think a lot of people that you know, have these kind of pivotal life experiences uh, end up going in a totally different direction from maybe where they started. So you know, in my case, um, I grew up really interested in finance. Uh, I was really competitive in sports as a kid and math was a strong suit. So I ended up um, opening up an E-Trade account when I was 13 and uh, working at a hedge fund when I was 16 and helping launch a fund of funds when I was 19. And then when I was 20, I was in college. I was playing basketball at a Brown University And I saw a film called Baraka that was shot in uh, 24 different countries around the world and just, you know, kind of showed all these indigenous cultures and places that I hadn't even considered uh, existed at that stage in my life. And it just kind of piqued this interest around travel and trying to get outside of my comfort zone. And one thing that I've always shared is that I think true self-discovery begins where your comfort zone ends. And I really wanted to get outside of my comfort zone. And so I went on the uh, Semester at Sea Study Abroad program in 2005. And when I was on that ship, I had a series of just completely life-changing experiences, but probably uh, one of them that that I think is most relevant for this conversation is that I would ask uh, one child in each country that I went through a simple question, and that was, "If you could have anything in the world, what would you want most?" And I'd have them write it down on a piece of paper, and you know, I thought I'd I'd kind of get the answers of what I wanted as a kid, so you know, a huge house or a cool boat or you know the latest piece of technology or a video game or owning a sports team and. Uh, when I got to India where the poverty was just the most stark and devastating and in particular affected children, uh, I felt pretty helpless. And and I happened to ask this one young boy, uh, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? And his answer was a pencil. And uh, I gave him my pencil and I just saw how excited he was and uh, realized he had never been to school before and that that was a reality for not only this young boy, but for many millions of children around the world. And again, it's just something that I never even really uh, thought was possible at that stage in my life. I I kind of thought, you know, maybe some kids have a bad school experience or they don't have a teacher that comes very often. But the notion that a kid just would never have the opportunity to learn in any type of, you know, real committed environment uh, was unfathomable to me. And so I decided to do something about it with with my kind of energy and effort. And, you know, I, I started traveling a ton, backpacking to as many countries as I could, which ended up being know 40 50 countries over a number of years and wow. the more time i traveled the more uh i spent time in you know really really rural indigenous communities i didn't really care about the kind of tourist sites i i, I wanted to learn from the people and so i'd meet somebody in a cafe and i'd ask you know if they could <laughs> if i could have dinner with them in their home in some village like hours into the countryside and sometimes spend multiple days in these places and uh i was just found tremendous you know dignity and humanity and kindness and generosity in these communities and wanted to do something to give back and so eventually um got a job at Bain uh a top arguably the top consulting firm in the world working with Fortune 500s and, and I just saw how great businesses are run and I felt like maybe this could be applied to a great nonprofit and so uh in October 2008 when my grandmother was was almost 80 uh I wanted to celebrate her and her life she's a holocaust survivor and just this extraordinary woman and uh, you know really honor her in her lifetime. And the idea was to find a way to build one school. And so inspired by that boy, uh, I started Pencils of Promise with uh, $25 on the side of my job and uh, crowdsourced the initial um, you know $25,000 over a number of parties with my friends starting with my birthday uh, to build one school. And that's really how things kind of kicked off late 2008 the, you know in hopes of building one school.
0: Wow, man, like you've lived an incredible life already at a young age it's been unexpected it's,
1: (laughs) it's been fascinating but i mean it's it led me to great people and you know interesting conversations like you and like this one so uh i think the more you put yourself out there you know the more you kind of open yourself up to the possibilities of you know creating what what i call um you know living a life that's a story worth telling
0: look man can you tell us what ingredients a vision needs to have to change the world oh wow great
1: question so you know, I think one of them is is just um, kind of scale and scope, right? Uh, you know, if you're really going to change the world, there's kind of two different approaches. So there's the one approach that says, uh, and I think this kind of comes from religious text, that the concept that it's that if you kind of save one life, that's, it's as if you have um, saved the whole world. And that is something, truthfully, that I actually find a lot of validity in. You know, the the concept that, you know, just being a great family person, you know, being a great father or mother to one child is something that is completely worth devoting your entire life to then there's the other approach that says you know you want to impact as many lives as you can and that obviously for some people is millions for some people it's it's billions of lives that have been changed by you know just the impact of them being on this planet and uh i wouldn't say that you you kind of want to discredit one over the other it's just a matter of what is your personal preference and so in my case i try and you know strike a balance between the two but i think In particular, my twenties were really dedicated to the latter, which was uh, impacting as many people as I could in a positive and profound way. And so, you know, back to your original question, what ingredients does a vision that changes the world require? I think first and foremost is, you know, an understanding of the the scale or the the scope of the lives that you want to change. I think the second is the understanding that no person does anything by themselves, and that oftentimes great leadership is. Uh, really about empowering others and creating an extraordinary team and so that would be the second is is you know the ability and the the effort that goes into uh, creating an extraordinary team that is equally devoted to a shared vision and then you know having I think the humility to say I don't need all the power at all times and in fact the more that I can delegate that authority and ownership to others the more powerful it makes the broader entity Um, and so that's probably the second and then I, I think the third is, um, you know, is real, uh, I think, work ethic. I mean, there are people who, you know, have this desire to change the world, but they don't understand that it doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it doesn't happen, you know, most frequently within a year or two years or or three years or five years. It's, you know, a really long journey. And I know Malcolm Gladwell writes about the 10,000 hour rule that, you know, you have to put in 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. But... Uh, I find that it, it's it's just this day-to-day work ethic that you know you're willing to stay up late nights when others are asleep to work on that vision or you know you're willing to go to that brunch that where you might not know anybody there, but you're willing to put yourself in that uncomfortable situation because it might unlock some opportunity on a day when you just want to sit home and rest. And so th- those would be my three. but what about you? I mean it's a great question. what do you <laughs> think are the the elements it does, that are required for vision to change the
0: world. You're flipping it back on me. You know what? I just before I answer that, man, I really want to say that all three points resonate with me. Mastery is a huge one. It's definitely the long game. It's just you know staying up late and working those long hours while everybody else is at the club or you know doing something else that uh, isn't really getting them uh, anywhere closer to their vision. Um, it, it's funny, you know, this the first point that you mentioned about finding out your scope of giving back. You know, I was having a conversation with Tony Robbins uh, a few months back, and it's crazy because he was saying that, you know, he's impacted more than I think something like 50 million people, but he's done it with them in the room. So that's the kind of impact that yeah. he wants, and he, he wants to go for the billions. So he's done that, and then, you know, you see people now with social media and the internet and everything, they're having impact online. So I love that you said that. That really makes me think about what I'm doing because we've reached, you know, over 66 million views with Addicted to Success. So I really want to like dig deeper and find out how can we really utilize the audience and the eyeballs that we have and find a way to really give back. Because that's a lot of mm-hmm. eyeballs, man. I feel a sense of responsibility. So yeah, yeah, I'm powerful. still learning this, man. I'm still learning this. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are really learning it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, to, to really answer your question about the ingredients a vision needs to have to change the world, it's knowing what fascinates you. hmm and then having a, going on a relentless pursuit to expose that and then inspire others to do the same with whatever fascinates them. Because I think that's what really makes the world an interesting place. I, f- I think that if people are interested and they're excited about things, they're going to be a lot happier. And happiness is the overall big thing that you know everyone's trying to achieve, really. That's success, man, at the end of the day. Yep. yeah. I think that's totally valid. Beautiful, man. Why, why is giving back so important to you? Oh,
1: well, I mean, I think, one, it's, it's kind of the source, uh, the secret source of happiness. I mean, I, I think if you look at any scientific study, and, you know, it's just proven time and time again, I mean, it's just one of the kind of key enduring ingredients to discovering happiness in your life is uh, sharing and connecting with others, and in particular, being of service to other individuals. So, you know, you can buy as many gifts for yourself as you want, but I guarantee you know, you'll be a lot happier if you were to look at the things you bought for yourself and just say, you know, half of these things I'm actually going to give away to others or I'm going to spend that money on, you know, a worthwhile charitable organization or I'm going to go down to a soup kitchen and, you know, I'm going to spend an afternoon rather than kind of, you know, working on something of self-consumption of being of service to others. So I think first and foremost, um, strangely, from a kind of selfish perspective, I think the the best lives that people often enjoy the most are ones that incorporate giving back. Uh, mm-hmm. Then I think there's this this second piece that, um, you know, for a lot of people might be grounded in their faith or their belief in kind of a higher power that connects all individuals. But you know, there's this notion uh, that I often feel, uh, and it's a sense of responsibility, and it's not kind of an obligation based responsibility but it's the responsibility that, that, that feels like an honor when you really kind of put that um, on your shoulders, which is to improve the lives of others. Uh, I just believe really deeply that you know, I, I, I'm not here for some you know, random lucky occurrence. I feel like I have a purpose in being. Mm-hmm. And I think that once you discover your sense of purpose, uh, it's almost impossible to fundamentally believe, at least from what I've seen in a lot of conversations with, pe- with people about what is their purpose, Uh, I've never seen a purpose that is singular and that it's contained in just that one individual. I mean, some people are like, you know, I just I'm here to create my art. But even the the kind of addendum to that that you always hear is I'm here to create my art so that I can share it with the world. And so Hmm. I think when you kind of move past passion and you move into purpose, you recognize that, you know, your reason for existence, like the kind of grounding fundamental truth of, of why you believe you are here. Uh, Is to connect with a broader set of individuals and so you know that that's for me really the the core driver of why I feel such a sense of responsibility getting back is because I I don't believe that my life You know is is meant to just be contained in This small little container of what I want to do. I feel like I'm here to help be of service to others Um, and so Yeah for me, it's it's kind of you know everything (laughs) all at once and so, you know, I'll be taking showers all the time and I'll just be thinking about, okay, you know, uh, I have this one task that I'm really working on or I have this one kind of challenge ahead that I'm trying to fight through. But then I'll kind of try to pull myself out and, and think from, you know, the 30,000 foot perspective and say, all right, well, how does that task fit into the purpose of, of my existence? And does it lead to me, you know, living a life that improves the well-being of, of others in a tangible and meaningful and enduring way? And if it doesn't, then maybe I need to reassess that task. Uh, and so, uh, for me, it's it's kind of those two things: both the desire to, you know, live a, a happy life, and then at the same time fulfill my sense of purpose.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great answer, man. You know, it's uh, it's really fulfilling knowing that you have a value there and that you can share that value with others. I think it makes you feel connected, really, doesn't it? When people yeah yeah it and, and love I, it, yeah,
1: yeah. And I th- I think truthfully, a lot of that stems at least my case, and I'm guessing probably similar for you as somebody who spends a lot of time you know, traveling all over, have lived in various parts of the world, I, I think mm-hmm. travel really kind of opens up that, that desire to give back because you realize just how you know big the world is and how many different cultures and different types of people exist, and at the same time you also kind of recognize your position of privilege. And it's one thing that I've shared with a lot of people is that you know, in, in traveling to the most uh, rural parts of, of you know, tremendous poverty and suffering, and then you know, having traveled also in, in circles with you know, some of our donors at Pencils of Promise or some of the wealthiest people uh, in the United States, and kind of seeing both of those types of lives, one thing that I, I've noticed for sure within just kind of human nature is the fact that everybody, regardless of the position that you are in, feels that there are others who are above them, Uh, in terms of accomplishment, in terms of wealth, in terms of happiness, all these different measures that you can think about. And they always recognize that there are people that are below them. But I think it's once you start traveling that you really see how most of the world lives and most of the world is below the poverty line. And so you kind of immediately recognize, wow, even if I don't think I'm all that well off or all that powerful or all that successful, I'm actually in a position where I can help a tremendous amount of people without really having to put myself completely... "Quote unquote," like out of your own business or you know, out of your own area of personal comfort, and I think that that's why you know travel is just one of the most profound things that you can do for your own psyche. And I've seen it; just it leads to a desire to give back for a lot of
0: others. Yeah, a hundred percent, man, a hundred percent. You know, a couple days ago, because I'm in Bali, Indonesia, right now, uh, Mm -hmm. staying out in Ubud, and I went out to the rice fields with a friend, and there was this lady that was walking along, basically carrying like a this bag of sand on her head she looked so Mm -hmm. battered man just dripping with sweat she looked at at least 80 years old or so she was really old man and and i was looking and i felt like wow like this lady is doing what we consider in the western world like a man's job a male's job right and Mm -hmm. she she didn't have much muscle on her but she was doing it and she was doing it because she you know needed to be paid and this is all that she knows and she came up and and she like was watching us and i asked her if she could take a picture for us and i did it because mm-hmm. i wanted to offer her something back but i wanted her to feel like you know she she did something so I, i've returned a favor so i gave her the camera yeah. and she took a picture and then i said to her i said look thank you so much here you go and i gave her it was literally like whatever i had in my wallet at the time it was like ten dollars uh, in american dollars right and her oh, eyes what? nearly popped out of her head man and, and then she was like terima kasih, terima kasih, which means thank you and then she walked off and she had a pep in her step, man. She walked off and she had this bounce in her step. And I was talking to one of the other locals that were nearby and he was, I asked him, you know, how much do these people get paid that work out in these fields? And he said, literally like $3 a day. And mm. what I just paid her, you know, is like three, days, three and a half age. days work. It's, it's crazy, man, it's crazy. And we take all this for yeah. granted, you know? Yeah. So when you do start putting yourself in those situations um, and you do travel the world, like you said, it changes the game, man. It really does. You, you start wanting to make your money matter more. So yeah, completely. I love what you're doing, man. It's it's an absolute game changer. You're inspiring many people, man.
1: Hey, likewise, likewise. Just happy to be on the journey together.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So you know, lots of people have great ideas. You know, with your pencils of promise, it's it's an absolutely great idea. It's worked so well for you. But how did you get so many people to back you and support your mission?
1: Well, you know, at the beginning, the, the desire was really about building community. And I think that was pretty different from most other organizations that were financially driven. Um, you know, when, when I began, I was 24 2025. 25. I certainly didn't have a lot of money. My friends were really in rough shape because this is late 2008. And in New York in particular, you know, it's the worst economic conditions in probably 60 years. And so my friends were mostly out of jobs. Uh, if they had a job, they were kind of, you know, scratching the dollars together to go out on a Friday or Saturday night. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wasn't really committed to. And the other thing is, especially back then, I, I really didn't enjoy the act of fundraising. It wasn't what motivated me. What motivated me was uh, being on the ground with local and, you know, communities and working directly with children. That's that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that for my backpacking days, it didn't cost a lot of money to go out there and have a meaningful impact and to you know, live on 20 or 30 bucks a day was definitely something I was comfortable doing. So uh, at the start, I just felt like, okay, this is a very personal mission. I want to find a way to build a school and honor my grandmother. And I had used my birthday, which is Halloween, um, as a fundraiser for years, really starting when I was 21 in college. I would always use it as uh, a means to bring people out, charge, you know, some money at the door, nothing unreasonable. And then I'd always give the, the funds to an organization called the Cambodian Children's Fund that I was really committed to through college and a couple of years afterwards. And so I'd had this experience and I thought, you know something, I can use my birthday, uh, ask people to give $20 at the door, and then I can uh, also maybe host people at my place for New Year's and hopefully that can get me close to the amount, and if uh, not, then I can kind of make up from my savings from my job at Bain and some other you know kind of small businesses that I had worked on over the years to find a way to build this school and honor my grandmother. And so, you know, we we essentially kind of preempted what nowadays everyone just refers to as crowdsourcing. But uh, back then it didn't have a name. Um, And so, you know, we raised uh, the first really $100,000 or so uh, was uh, almost entirely through contributions of less than $100 from people in their teens and 20s. And so it was really this youth-led movement. And I didn't want to spend any money on marketing or advertising or the traditional ways of you know, sending out direct mail, and I was Mark Zuckerberg's year in college, and when he started Facebook in 10 schools, uh, Harvard being one of them, uh, in the sophomore class, I was a sophomore at Brown, we were one of the other 10 schools, so my friends and I were essentially the beta testers for Facebook, and you know, again, 2008 was a pretty different period from now. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no, you know, Twitter, there wasn't Kickstarter, there wasn't Indiegogo, there weren't all these platforms, but I just knew that You know, my friends were on Facebook. It was going to become an important part of the fabric of our culture. And as soon as uh, brands and companies realized that young people were using these platforms, they were going to put a lot of their cause marketing dollars into whichever uh, companies and organizations had the largest followings on social media. So I didn't really ask anybody for money outright. Uh, We we threw events, and we tried to create a two-way value exchange. And we knew, you know, I had seen the data. I think it was 84% of individuals will switch from one product, brand, or service to another if all things are equal and one of them has a positive social impact. When you look at millennials, that's up over 90%. So I thought, well, you know, one thing that's going to happen as people start running low on money in New York, they're still, you know, as young people, gonna go out uh, to try and, you know, meet somebody on a Friday and Saturday and Sunday night. And so if I can create a positive alternative to the traditional bar where, you know, truthfully, especially when people are out of jobs, you walk into a bar and you can almost kind of feel this negative energy, like people are going there to get wasted and almost kind of forget about the troubles of their day-to-day life. And I thought if we could create events that were all about kind of celebrating positivity, and you know by showing up that all the proceeds of your kind of entry at the door or for the open bar is going directly to build the school, that that environment would be one of celebration and that it would also kind of bring out a better crowd that would want to come back. And so we did all these kind of early events um, that were really fun and brought out just really, you know, kind of happy people, connected them in meaningful and authentic ways. And then in the process, you know, used social media in ways that other organizations hadn't and built up an iconic brand. And now, I mean, I fundamentally believe in them kind of, you know, it's reinforced by people coming up and telling me all the time that we have one of the top brands in the cause space and, you know, this stunningly beautiful website and incredible content. We had our, our gala last week and our gallery is $2 million, but, uh, we premiered over, I think we're the first organization to use um, virtual reality in an incredible way. So people that showed up could take ah, a nice. 90 second tour of the lives of one of our students going from the village to learning under mango trees to a fully completed pencil promise school. And, you know, the long-term ramifications of something like that are huge, huge, huge mm-hmm. for this space. But, you know, I focused on building community above all else in the beginning. And by You know, focusing on connecting people in meaningful ways and being authentic and transparent, it created this rabid following that now we can leverage for marketing partnerships. You know, Microsoft, when they launched Microsoft 10 earlier this year, rather than going out and, you know, buying the the Super Bowl ad, they thought, you know, we should partner with the most powerful nonprofits um, in the world. And so they made a $500,000 commitment to Pencil of Promise to help them launch Microsoft 10. And so that's the kind of years later coming to fruition and getting back to what we were talking about earlier of kind of putting in the work, and mm-hmm. to use your phrase, you know, being in it for the long game. Uh, back in 2009 when I'm up at 1 a.m. in the morning like tweeting back at people, uh, or 2010 whenever it was, mm-hmm. you know, sending direct messages to people, thanking them for their contributions, you don't see the immediate effects of that, but five years later when you get half a million dollars from one of the largest companies in the world, that's when it really pays off.
0: Wow. Just, just so you know, man, actually your boy Gary Vaynerchuk put me onto that whole uh, <laughs> staying mm-hmm. in it for the long game. That's really his thing and, and yeah. I've, I've taken that on board. And you've lived that too, man. I really love that, you know, what you've done. You've applied that to every area of your life, man. I can see that. You, you know, like you almost have this, uh, you, have, you live intentionally. You, I can see you're yeah. living intentionally. Everything that you do, and I'm sure every single day, like I do, you're thinking like, "Is this good for the business? Is this good for the people? You know, is this yeah. gonna get me to the level that I need to be at to, you know, breathe life into my next vision?" So, yeah, I had I love a,
1: it. I had a really, really interesting talk with one of my best friends, Dan, and and Dan is is not a businessman; he's a rock guitarist, and he also, um, he's got a master's in classical composition, so he does musical scores for commercials and and movies. So uh, we were at a concert lately and, and just kind of, you know, during a break in between two different acts, we were talking and uh, I was asking him, you know, what is it that leads you to feeling like you had a great day? Because we were both at this show and, you know, towards the end of the night, and I think, I can't remember if one of us had a good day and the other one had a bad, or we both had good days, but uh, we were just kind of picking it apart. And, and oftentimes it's like, it's, it's tough to figure out what leads you, you know, when you come home at the end of the day and you sit down for dinner. You know, some days you feel energized and you feel... You know, really great about it. And other days, you, you don't feel all that great. And I was talking to him, and I was like, you know, today was a day where I actually raised a lot of money—maybe fifty or a hundred thousand dollars came in for Pencil Promise. And four years ago, five years ago, you know, I would have been ecstatic for a month if that happened. But right now, it doesn't feel quite as as great. And I'm I'm wondering why. And so he said something that was just so true and so powerful to me that I would I would share with you and your listeners. And I would even ask you, what is it that kind of You know, if you had to break it down, leads you to a great day. But his answer was, um, I feel like I'm having a great day or I've had a great day when I have actively moved closer to my goals. You know, whatever those goals are, if across the course of the day I have made significant movement towards the enactment of those goals, that feels like a great day. And it was a really, really kind of spot on description in my mind because I think oftentimes, you know, your goals shift but your activities stay the same. And so, you know, you might undertake an activity, and at that stage, you know, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, we were having a good quarter, and so I was less focused on the financial outcomes that given day, and I was more focused on the programmatic outcomes, and maybe, I I can't remember, maybe I wanted something to happen in one of our schools, and so because I spent my day on the fundraising, not on the programmatic side, I didn't feel quite as good, but it was the first time that I really understood what you just brought up, which is the value of intentional Uh, Living because I think about it all the time, but I had never kind of connected it to the feeling that I have at the end of the day. And it it Mm. just kind of pulled me out and made me realize, all right, if I want to feel great at the end of the day, I need to understand what my goals are and then take sufficient steps towards the realization of them.
0: Yeah, progress, progress, that's for sure. You asking that question just made me really think about that too. And my answer would be coming out alive after stepping in the uncomfortable zone. Because mm-hmm. I know that after going into the, you know, that uncomfortable zone, but making yeah. it through, man, you, you've made progress like massive. I think this yeah. is the thing, like maybe we have similar values in the sense of like wanting to progress and having growth and everything, but that really lights me up that I've just overcome this kind of mini obstacle. It doesn't have to be massive, but mini, because I know that it's made me a bigger and stronger person. And really yeah. when you're a bigger and stronger person, you can be more inspirational to others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I- Achieve the massive vision where kind of this conversation started is the tolerance for risk. You know, you have to be willing to get completely uncomfortable and and even crave it a little bit. That's one thing that I'm definitely seeing. I mean, you know, it's 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 something that I've I've shared with you know people I'm close to is is I don't really enjoy uh, contentment. I kind of feel restless yes. when yes. I'm content, and I kind of want to go back into that place where the risk is high and the reward is high. Um, and that's kind of a a weird feeling. You know, I mean certain people, you know, like I'm not a, a, a physical thrill seeker, you know, I don't like climb mountains or, you know, like I, I follow a couple of people on Instagram that are uh, real outdoorsmen and they're always posting these insane photos of guys like, you know, um, free climbing on the sides of ridiculous mountains <laughs> with no ropes. And I look at that and I'm like, that is insane, you know, and other people they have that desire to like ride the crazy wave or take the you know, insane mountain biking course or go off the huge ski cliff but i think for probably people like you and i we we crave that same kind of thrill of uh risk and and reward but we just do it kind of in our business or you know our kind of impact based um mm. efforts uh rather than maybe the physical one unless maybe you are like a kind of wild daredevil yeah. <laughs> <and> the <laughs> slopes or on the waves yeah. or something like that
0: I, I don't mind a little bit of it, man. But then I, uh, you know, talking to my friend, Yoke Summer, who's one of the Red Bull uh, base jumpers, man, okay. just hearing how crazy he is. and like him seeing his friends die around him, but still doing yeah. it. I, yeah, that's not the game I want to play, man. I want to be here for many years. <laughs>
1: yeah, same, same.
0: <laughs> Dude, I, I feel like I have so many questions for you, and I think we might need to do like two interviews. Uh, you know spread it out and have another one down the track <laughs> I'm down <laughs> but uh one uh, question that came to mind uh j- just uh earlier on was why do you think it takes so long for people to realize that they want to give back
1: uh, I think it's a combination of things I think um, the, the first one is just quite simply um you know it's m- most people come from you know rough places financially and uh, they oftentimes have early life experiences that can be quite traumatizing. And so there's this desire to attain a level of personal security and take care of yourself before you take care of the world. And I think that that's just kind of inherent human nature. I mean, I, I went into um, philanthropic work when I started Pencils of Promise with the opposite approach. And that's because I had a certain death experience on Semester at Sea and, um, before I ever met that boy, which was uh, 13 days into my voyage, my ship was hit by a 60 foot rogue wave about 800 miles from land. The water crashed through the bulletproof glass and uh, ha- flooded the area that housed the navigational equipment and the power to our engines. So we lost all power to steer and we're in 45 foot swells, um, freezing hypothermic water outside of us, and no ship uh, within a day, a day and a half of us. Wow. So, you know, a panic announcement to get to the muster stations where you have to evacuate your ship. Um, and it was just certain death. And so, as as soon as that happened to me and obviously you know fortunately we survived and it's a very long story and it's it's in the book the promise of a pencil it's the third chapter it's the first chapter that i ever wrote for the um the proposal because it was really the most transformational thing that's ever happened to me in my life is kind of seeing the end of days and then coming out of it but only because of that experience i think i have a a different perspective from most which is you know i i kind of I just value being here (laughs) and I kind of have this inherent belief that if I take care of the world, the world will take care of me back. Uh, I think most people, they kind of view things through the opposite lens and that's totally okay is, you know, it's my duty to take care of myself and then once I've done that, then I have the opportunity to take care of the world. And so, you know, part of it is that they just don't define the threshold of what is taking care of themselves. And so I think if every person, you know, when they were, let's say 16 or 20 or 22 years old said, here's the level of financial... Uh, requirements that I have, and here's what I want to be happy, and then I can start giving back to others. Then they would start giving back um, probably at at an earlier place. But life is extraordinarily relative. And so as soon as you start to attain some level of financial comfort, you look around and you see others and you say, well, they have a lot more than I have. I want to be like that. And so you start chasing that instead of immediately finding ways to give back. Um, And so I think one thing that any individual can do is just the simple concept of tithing. Which I know is really big within the Mormon religion, but you know they commit I think ten percent. But I've seen other people, you know, board members of mine that worked at really big financial firms that said, look, you know, the partners uh, just instituted this rule where they said four percent of your annual salary has to go back to causes that you care about, and it just required these people, you know, right when they started making a lot of money and probably would have kept that money for themselves to give back, but now they're some of the most philanthropic people because they've instituted it as a kind of piece of their personal. Culture and their way of being, and so um, you know, I'd always encourage people just you know set your percentage. If it's one percent, if it's ten percent. Uh, when I was talking to um, Ty Lopez uh, on his oh, podcast, yeah. he was saying you know what he recommends is is to go just beyond your comfort zone a little bit more than you feel like you should be giving. But what happens is one, you kind of receive this bump of of this kind of personal you know uh, halo effect, this kind of warm fuzzy feeling. Uh, but then secondly, it, it probably motivates you financially even more to outperform in the next year so that you can give more away and you know retain more for yourself. And so um, you know, I think it's kind of one of those things where it's so heavily driven by personal preference. But the great thing is, if you just look at it culturally, uh, people are increasingly giving more and more uh, of their own financial well-being to others because they're seeing the benefits of it. I think social media connects us in this beautiful and powerful way where we're able to see the kind of direct impact we're able to have on the lives of others. And then also you see incredible leadership um, on social media with people who are influencing others and doing so, I mean, you know, I, I think both of us are friends with Lewis Howes. You know, Lewis has been an yeah. incredible, uh, I think, mentor to a lot of people because he got involved with with us at Pencils of Promise. You know, he sought me out at a concert. <laughs> we were at a concert the <laughs> Lower East Side of a mutual friend, John Batiste, who's now the um, the frontman for, uh, for the late show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, yep. but this was years ago before he was big and and uh, I was just, you know, outside after the concert and Lewis came up to me and was like, "Hey, you're Adam Braun? I said, "Yeah." He said, "I want to build a school." And I said, "Okay, well, it costs $25,000. You can fund it or fundraise it." But, you know, a lot of people have said I'll do that and then never really come through. And like within 3 weeks, Lewis had both funded uh, and kind of, you know, gone to his community, said, I want you to help me build this school for my birthday. They had put up some of the money. He made up um, any of the difference and then went on the ground. And because I think he shared his experience in Guatemala, you know, with that school, he inspired so many others. I mean, his ripple effect has literally created dozens of schools that I personally know of through Pencils of Promise because of him inspiring others. And so, you know, I think there are kind of these, these beacons uh, that help guide others into philanthropy. Um, but you know my, my guess is you will be or already are one of those people um, mm-hmm. and it just takes great leadership from from people that come at it with the right approach.
0: Now I've just reached the halfway point of this amazing interview with Adam Braun and I just want to make a special announcement for all the listeners right now that we have teamed up with Adam and Pencils of Promise to raise money to build a school in Laos for the children in need. Now giving back is a huge part of success you know a lot of people's definition of success may be uh, to make a lot of money to have a lot of material things to travel the world but a huge part of living is giving and we are really encouraging this at addicted to success right now it is a huge part of feeling fulfilled and also playing your part in this world so head over to addicted to success.com and that's addicted with the number two success.com slash pop which is P-O-P, and you can click the link there on that page, and that will take you to the campaign that we have right now with Pencils of Promise, and we are on our way to build a school for 25,000 US dollars. So whether you're looking at offering $1 or $5 or $10 or $20 or $100 or $1000, whatever it is, every dollar counts, and I appreciate you even considering playing your part in this awesome cause. So. Head over to that address right now so you can donate and be a part of this with me and the Addicted to Success community alongside Adam Braun and Pencils of Promise. Thank you for your contribution and thank you for tuning into this episode. All right, now let's get back into this interview. I think a lot of people don't know how they can give back. They don't know, like, should I set mm-hmm. up a non-for-profit? Is it a for-purpose? Like, it, It's a little bit confusing for some yeah. people. So what would you advise somebody to do if they're like... You know, I want to give back, but I just don't know where to start. Like, what are the, if you could give us like maybe three or four or five, whatever simple steps, just straightforward, this yeah. and this and this and this, this would be awesome because people can start actioning it today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of three different ways you can give of yourself to an organization. So uh, the three T's are kind of what they're often referred to as. So there's time, there's treasure, and there's talent. And I think for each individual, you kind of have to assess where you're at in your life and how you want to focus those three. So most people I don't think should go out and start a new organization. Most people won't even go work full time for an organization. If you're in a position where you say, hey, I'm late stage in my career and I'm really just focused on having a broader impact on the world, maybe you want to go work full time for an organization. Or if you're you know, at a stage where that's your area of focus. I think for most, though, they're quite kind of happy with where they're at right now but they just want to incorporate uh, a way to give back. And so for those individuals, again, three T's, time, treasure, and talent. Uh, What I always encourage is, you know, first off, make a financial contribution. It's probably the easiest. It's the kind of lowest level commitment in my mind is to just go onto an organization's website, you know, Make a contribution. I think what's oftentimes um, best is to sign up for a recurring giving campaign. And so, you know, you've seen these for years with organizations like World Vision or Plan International, where, you know, you can sponsor a child in Africa for X dollars per month. Um, those, those create a level of kind of commitment and, you know, consistent feedback to know that you're continuing to impact something uh, that I think is more profound than one off. So at Pencils of Promise, we create a, a really cool program that we call Passport. Uh, so, you know, for as little as I think 10 or you know 20 bucks a month, anybody can go to pencilpromise.org passport, and you sign up for this campaign. Um, and you become a monthly recurring donor, uh, and, you know, you get access to really cool kind of insider information, stories from the ground, and I think it, it's a very simple way for you to feel connected to a cause and feel like, you know, with each uh, dollar that you're making in your personal or professional life, you're also impacting the life of another. Then, if you want to get more involved, then you move over to the time. And that's where volunteering, I think, becomes really significant. And you know, I encourage people to target whatever they comes with. Maybe it's just once a month you go uh, and you volunteer at your kid's school. Or you go and you volunteer at a local soup kitchen or a homeless shelter. Or you know, you counsel uh, youth that are in troubled situations. You go to a uh, penitentiary and you try and teach skills to inmates. Whatever that thing is, time, I think, is, is the kind of next uh, level commitment. And uh, then the third one is, is uh, talent. And that's where you say, okay, I'm going to apply myself fully to an organization or partially. But I think one thing that's really, really underestimated is the value of uh, great board members. So at Pencil Promise, for example, we have a board of directors. Uh, it's myself and 11 others that are fully committed. I mean, we put in a lot of hours, you know, quarterly board meetings, monthly subcommittee calls. But then we also have what we call our advisory board. And that's for the people who say you know, I have a lot of ability to help you. The one thing I don't have is a tremendous amount of time. And so uh, they make three-year financial commitments to kind of create the backbone of the organization's financial stability, but they also apply their talents. And so they help advise us and counsel us and connect us where they are kind of best suited. So, you know, on our advisory board, you have individuals like uh, Lewis, who we were just talking about, who is connected Um, Us to a lot of great people in the, you know, kind of internet marketing world who have real expertise in how we scale our brand online. And so um, also Marie Forleo and Pat Flynn just joined our advisory board as well. But then we also have, you know, celebrities like Usher that can help raise the public profile of the organization. Uh, my brother, um, Scooter Braun, is you know, heavily involved in the media industry. He's been a great advisory board member, but then you also have um, you know just families that connect us in with how we interface with schools. Um, and so those are kind of the three ways that I always encourage people is to evaluate how you can apply your, your treasure first um, in a way that connects you to a cause, then your time uh, so that you can be a volunteer or kind of a counsel to an organization in a meaningful way and then the third is the talent where you really apply your skills and in particular i think uh you know board membership is hugely hugely valuable
0: oh wonderful man you broke it all down nice and crystal clear for the listeners so i appreciate you man i really do thank you you know uh, yeah, i'm gonna kind of open up emotionally here man because um you know you were at the Thrive event in Las Vegas and you were speaking on stage and you spoke very well you're very articulate man you delivered incredibly and Thank you. you know this doesn't happen often for me but when you played one of the videos of the the is the two girls I'm not sure where it was I think maybe yeah. in like Laos or uh, yeah, like Laos exactly. or Cambodia yeah and it was in Laos. they were talking about you know the, the school or whatever they were just like really uh excited about the school opening and everything and man I teared I actually really teared up and i had this yeah man i did and i I had this really strong like emotional feeling in my chest and i just felt Mm. lit up and i just felt like moved and i i didn't know what to do but i was like i I need to i need to talk because we had talked just before that uh, at lunch you know and i just i was like man i really do need to connect with adam and then you reached out to me the next day so i just feel like you know it's all coming together and and just with the impact that i already have man i'd love to really you know, connect with you and, and take this even further. And, uh, any listeners that are tuning in right now, yeah. whatever we put out with Adam, like jump on board, you know, if this is what you feel too, then jump on board.
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my hope is this is, you know, the start of a journey ahead and in any way that I, or Pences of a promise can, you know, help you, uh, and your, your community really channel their ability. You know, I mean, a lot of people, you know they associate the organization as as the first word pencils right because this this you know easy to tell transferable story that actually happened to me in India, yeah. um is kind of the organization's narrative. But I've always been a bigger fan. Uh, what got me so excited about the organization when I came up with the name was was the word promise, mm-hmm. uh, because it has two meanings. The first is the oath or the commitment I make a promise to an individual, and I felt like you know at various points in time when I make a promise I want to uphold it. Maybe part of it was um, that video that you saw. Uh, with those girls where I said, and you're going to be our first preschool students. And that was a promise. And I really value, you know, when you put your word behind something that you, you know, come through with it. But what's even more powerful is the second definition of the word promise, which is potential, you know, an individual's kind of latent capacity to be more than they currently are showing or demonstrating. And, you know, this enormous potential that we each possess um, to do good things in the world. And so, you know, if if, if uh, this is the start of kind of unlocking that enormous promise that uh, you and the Addicted to Success community have, um, I'd be really psyched to, to work together on a cool campaign. And so hopefully, you know, whenever uh, the next kind of iteration of that occurs, anyone that's listening can, you know, kind of revert back and say, oh yeah, I heard them talking about it. And it's really cool to see that this is coming to fruition. <laughs>
0: that's it that's it and that's a great thing man to make that part of your character to be uh, you know a man of your word people Mm, really respect that man Stephen Covey talks about the speed of trust you know and it's it's so important to really uh, be by your word and you are so that's uh, excellent man excellent so you put your book out there you know quite a few years ago you put it out there and you put a few things in there that where you talked about your failures you talked about your weaknesses and so on which is um really admirable man because a lot of people don't like to do that they just like to boast or talk about their achievements so what is your experience been like putting your story out there putting your book out there for the masses to critique
1: yeah yeah i mean it's it's been totally uh almost like a fascinating sociological experiment to write a book about your (laughs) life, put it out into the world, and then observe how others consume that. Uh, Um, You know, you have certain things that you anticipate. Uh, It's definitely played out probably differently in, in more positive ways than I had anticipated. But, you know, first and foremost, I've always been a writer. And so, you know, anyone who's known me since I was, you know, 12 or 13, if you said, tell me something about Adam, they'd probably, in some part, describe me as a writer. Uh, so I've kept journals since I was 16. I used to write these these emails that turned into blogs that would get passed around by hundreds of people as I would travel. You know, I would meet people and they'd be like, oh, you're that guy, I've read your emails while you were traveling, I know about this story. So I've always enjoyed writing. You know, it's always been on my bucket list to put out a book of some kind. Uh, but when I decided to write this book, it was it was really driven by a couple of things. The first was, you know, the desire to see the organization continue to succeed and scale without me having to be in the room. Uh, I think oftentimes when you have kind of single founder-led uh, organizations, there often becomes a dependence on that person to be in the room. And um, I just looked at you know that directionally. I said, no, we, we have to have kind of the asset for any individual to walk into the room or not even be in the room and kind of light that internal fire for somebody else. Um, so when I decided to write this book uh, titled The Promise of a Pencil, uh, part of it was to advance the organization and part of it was to just kind of get this story and then most importantly, the lessons that I had learned into a piece of content that could hopefully, and, and this goes back to the very first, uh, or one of the first questions you asked about kind of, you know, um, having the vision and what's most important. And, and, you know, I was talking about scale versus scope and do you want to impact one life or try and impact the millions? When I was writing this book, I was really distinctly thinking about impacting just one person. I was like, look, I might have 99% one star reviews. But if one 18-year-old is at a pivotal, difficult place in his or her life, and this book changes their life in the way that certain books have changed mine, then it is all worth it. And so that's kind of the style that I was trying to write for um, while also just sharing lessons for the masses. And so the book, as you probably know, is framed around 30 short chapters, and every chapter is titled with a mantra. And those mantras are just these short, pithy phrases that I've always used that write them down on walls as I... You know, in whiteboards in the office, in my journals, I'll just kind of leave them in notes across my apartment, and they just kind of serve as these guideposts as I'm trying to, you know, work through different challenges in life. And so I thought, you know, this will be easy for somebody else to just kind of get what this chapter is going to be about. They're super quotable, and they're really the the lessons learned on the path to creating a life of both success and significance. And so, um, you know, the book came out uh, early 2014, and. No, I, I was hoping that it could, you know, do well, change some people's lives. I didn't think that it would go to number two on the best uh, New York Times bestseller list, and then it sold out on Amazon in five days and became the number one business book in the country uh, that summer. And so all of that was a total surprise to me. But I think as a as a writer, um, and then as somebody who understands, because you go through it, what it takes to market a book, one of the things that you realize is you know, marketing a book creates this big splash up front, but what really matters to any writer is the way the content is received and whether people actually read it and then say, hey, this had a meaningful impact on my life. And so I think the book has like, something like around probably 900 or so Amazon reviews and I think 92% are five star. And, and I, you know, as an author, Initially, told myself I'm not going to read any of the reviews, but then you can't you can't help it. I've read like every single one, probably at least the, from the Amazon ones, and and it's because uh, it's really gratifying to see that people say like this book changed my life, or you know, it's just when I woke up this morning, I checked my email and and my Twitter feed. There were two different people that were responding to somebody else who said, "What's the book that's most changed your life in the last year?" And two different people saying like, "Hey, at Adam Braun and The Promise of a Pencil, best read of the year," and so yeah. that that's something that truthfully makes me want to write again. And so um, it's, it's an exhausting process. It's, it's really uh, like emotionally trying when you write a book about your story. Because the truth is, if people don't like it, they're kind of saying like, your life sucks, not your, your product or service. <laughs> um, but uh, oh, I, I think you know, in my mind, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, thinking, oh, I should write about my failures. I just thought I should write honestly about what the journey has been like and what it took to create Pencils of Promise. And what I would, you know, share with others in, in a way that is hopefully instrumental in their own progress, and that led to, you know, me evaluating what were the most important pivotal points. And I think anyone who's built something that has actually endured knows that you learn far more from the failures than you do from the moments of success. You know, this the the, the number of times that I can count a success that really changed you know, my kind of course of action is is pretty limited. You know, when you have a success, it just kind of reinforces that you should keep going on that path. Mm -hmm. It's when you have these big failures that you suddenly say, oh, no, something was wrong here. I need to correct for this. And then you change course. And those were more pivotal uh, pivotal to the organization's long-term growth and even my personal growth. And so, you know, there's one chapter just called Fess Up to Your Failures. There's one called Practice Humility Over Hubris. And, you know, there's a lot of instances where I just talk about you know, real, uh, direct personal failure. And I was scared when I was putting out the book that people were, you know, gonna read it and be like, well, this guy's an asshole. Look <laughs> at all these mistakes he made and look <laughs> at that time that he, you know, neglected the well-being of one of his teammates because he thought that, you know, he was helping the organization but he was really kind of hurting one of his employees. And I just tried to be open and honest and transparent about it and it's, it's been um, almost surprising how yeah. much of the feedback, when I read the reviews is, I appreciated that he acknowledged the failures. Yeah. Um, and I find that, you know, it's, it's as a writer, your, your goal is to uh, connect to your audience. And I think the best way to do that is through vulnerability. There's another chapter called Vulnerability is Vital. And I couldn't just kind of espouse it in my writing without actually practicing it in my life and then in the story itself. And so, um, you know, I'd encourage any person to go through the process of, of, of trying to write a book. Uh, it's really challenging but it's also, you know, it forces you to go to this place of introspection and kind of figure out who and what you really are deep down inside and then which of those places are you comfortable sharing with the world and then, you know, hopefully the the book itself has a, an impact on at least one person if not more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, look man, hypothetically speaking, if you had a one-star review, would you have read all those comments? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I have read all my one-star reviews and I, I have a, a fair amount of them. I mean, there, there was one that was put up, I don't know, within the last two weeks that were like, this book is total garbage. Can't believe I even wasted like any time on the first two chapters. Wow. So I've I, I've read them before. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> there's not a lot. I think if my book was 92% one-star, I'd probably stop
0: reading the yeah. reviews. <laughs> that imagine yeah. so bad. Hey, so Do you remember what it felt like the night before you put your book out? Like, how did it feel? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh my
1: God, it, it felt very scary. I mean, I it's it's probably the only time that I've like actually posted an Instagram photo uh, of my actual journal writing. So you know, I sat up and one thing is they don't really tell you when it's going to go live on the Amazon store. So I think I was like, oh, it'll go live at midnight, you know, on that Tuesday that it goes on sale. And so I'm sitting there like waiting for my book to actually be live on the Amazon store. I wanted to experience that moment. And it doesn't happen until three a.m. At least three a.m. <laughs> yeah. East Coast. So I'm noon, like West Coast in the states. Uh-huh. So my my wife's gone to sleep, and you know uh, we were engaged at that point in time. So she's in bed, and I'm like sitting there pressing refresh, like come on. <laughs> but um, you know y- y- you pour so much of it, your kind of heart and soul into your writing uh, if you write in the style that I do, um, that it, it was it was all nerves. You know it was kind of this mix of just apprehension and excitement. Uh, I didn't know if, you know, people were going to buy it. I didn't know if they were going to like it. But as soon as it went up, it, it was definitely a feeling of excitement. Like, you know, life was one way before, and hopefully now it's going to be at least somewhat different. And so, um, you know, it's it's fast, It's fast. weird, though. I mean, I, I was at an event last week, and I went up to um, see a guy that I had worked with uh, years ago when I was at Bain. And then he introduces me to two of the other guys, and we start talking and, you know, introducing ourselves. And then one of them is like, wait. Adam Braun I was like yeah and he's like dude I've read your book oh my god it's one of my favorite books and now <laughs> suddenly I'm like wait you know more about me than my buddy from Bain that's <laughs> known me for eight years you know if you've read this book so um so it's definitely an interesting feeling to know that certain people that in some way are strangers but other ways, you know they know more about you than anybody else but you know again uh hopefully the content resonates
0: That'd be a funny feeling, having somebody come up and just like, hey, Adam, and you're like, uh, hey, whoever you are, like just not even knowing their name or who yeah. they are. It's, it, it'd be a very uh, funny feeling, man. I, I'd imagine yeah, then- it, it could get a little bit emotionally draining too if you are at an event and you had, you know, hundreds of people coming up to you. I mean, how do you manage that? How do you handle that?
1: You know, I, I think it can be really challenging, but, you know, I, I always do my best to kind of remember what it was like to be on the other side, you know, mm-hmm. and I think about when I you know if i read, if i ran into paulo coelho who is the the author of the alchemist and one of my favorite books and a book that really hit me at an important stage in my life and kind of transformed the way that i was looking at the world if i met him it it would have been a, a really really big deal to me and if he just blew me off i'd kind of understand it but if he just gave me 10 seconds of his undivided attention it would have meant the world to me and so i always yeah. try and remember that like we all have the opportunity to be on both sides of the equation and so I try and you know give each person when they come up to me or you know send me an email about how the book impacted their life you know that that level of um you know, commitment, even though oftentimes I I try and say to them, look, you know, right now there's a long line behind you of people and I can't chat with you for 10 (laughs) minutes. But, you know, thank you for, you know, sharing what you shared. And, um, you know, if I can be of help, follow up with me over email. And then I, you know, my email address is just adam at ipromise.org. So the letter I, adam at ipromise.org, I always give it out and I encourage people just shoot me an email and, you know, let me know um, if you want to get involved in Pencils of Promise or if the book had a certain impact um, or how I can be most helpful. And I always ask people like, send me blog topics so that I can write about the things that you're interested in. And, you know, at some point I'm going to write a second book. book. And so having that feedback to know what people liked and didn't, um, will hopefully inform the next one so that it can be even better than the first.
0: Yeah. That's going to be tough, man, to top off that first book.
1: (laughs) I know I'm, I'm nervous about it, but, but, uh, you know, to, to what we were discussing earlier, if you're not willing to kind of Run towards that area of risk and and try something out and see if you can come out of the other side better than you enter. Then, then you then you're not going big enough.
0: <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. So you mentioned before that you're into mantras. Yeah. What's your favorite mantra?
1: You know, I think it evolves uh, and it, it depends on kind of where you're at at a certain stage. But you know, I think right now I'm 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 pretty into just the idea of uh, make your life a story worth telling. That, that one, I think it's kind of when you say it to yourself, it almost forces you to go beyond your comfort zone. And right now, I'm kind of in one of those personal, professional stages where uh, I need to go back to kind of a level of personal risk, where I'm not gonna rest on the you know the things that I've built thus far. Um, and uh, the only way that I can really motivate myself to do that is to continually reinforce this idea make your life a story worth telling. Uh, what about you, do you have a favorite?
0: You know, uh, one that you shared at Thrive really resonated with me. It was, um, speak the language of the person that you wish to become. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, that's and one of my favorites, it's for sure. Cra- because you ha- there's, like, the other one where, you know, a lot of people say they're, like, fake it till you make it and all that. But that's, like, I feel like it's cheap and tacky. But speaking mm, the language yeah. of the person that you wish to become, and that really resonated with me. That's one that rings really deep because that's how I've always felt. And i have never, like, looking at it from that way, you don't feel like you are cheaping it you feel like you know yes if i want to be this person i need to start like you know tony robbins a lot of the great coaches now out there say you've got to really model after the masters you yeah. know you really need to put yourself in that state you need to really walk talk and, and get into it and uh yeah that's one that really sits with me well mm-hmm. yeah it's a powerful one yeah awesome man uh what are some powerful lessons you learned during your travels Cause traveled to um, so how many countries have you traveled to so far?
1: So I stopped counting because it became kind of obnoxious to like quote <laughs> the exact number. Um, but it's around 80. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I've slowed down a lot in recent years. I mean, I was at like 50. I remember was Ecuador. Uh, and I was 23. I mean, I went through like oh 21 way. to 24. I went through like probably 40 countries. I was just like, wow. all I would do is just work and, And make a little bit of money and then take that money and go on like three, four month trips to as many countries as I could kind of ping pong through while also getting a great experience. But, you know, to your original question, what are some of the most powerful lessons? I would say first is um, the, you know, the concept of like, don't judge a book by its cover when it comes to people, you know, like someone that you meet might have a tremendous amount to offer you and it might be a woman you know selling random goods inside of a market but if you really start to ask for her story she might have these incredibly profound lessons so you know i think it's kind of this idea that i've recently been sharing in some of my speeches that in every single room you are both a teacher and a student and i think if you approach it that way that you are both a teacher and a student in every room that you're in you have something to offer others and at the same time others have something to offer you or you can learn i think travel can really reinforce that um, and then probably the, the other really profound lesson that I think came out of travel was just the idea that um, you know the world is a really big and powerful place and what you think is you know the kind of way of being that you've experienced is completely irrelevant to others And it's oftentimes like once you kind of acknowledge that it can be really empowering because I think a lot of our internal decisions of like hey, do I want to take that job or do I want to reach out to this friend or that one or put myself in that uncomfortable position, it seems really daunting. But when you go out and you see the world and you're like, oh, that person um, who lives in you know, Beijing, they don't know a single thing about me and my issues and all these things that I'm thinking through. And it kind of, I think, takes some of the the burden and the stress and the weight out of these decisions that might otherwise seem so daunting. And I think travel like, ends up kind of in, emboldening individuals to take the leap that they might not take otherwise.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's great, man. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, what would you say, apart from that day when you gave that boy a pencil in India, uh, what other experience would you say was really epic for you during your travels?
1: Uh, during the travels, so there was one where um, I was in uh, northern Vietnam. I was in Halong Bay and kind of by myself. and. Uh, there was this woman who was selling kind of tea by the side of the road and men would come by and for like a dollar Would get some tea and she was just cold. It was kind of cold afternoon I sat down I started talking to her and I went and I bought her like a pair of gloves for a dollar and Just came back and gave it to her and she was so excited She brought out this bottle of wine uh, from like under her little stand and like all these kind of men and women gather around next thing I know I'm with like 15 Vietnamese people in this random <laughs> down uh, <laughs> like sharing wine together and afterwards, I asked the woman, um, "I'd like to see your home, like where you live." And she was saying how she had a baby and her husband, and you know, the baby is one. So I asked if I could walk with her back to her home, and she walks me like kind of through this slum, basically, into her home. And her home was like one room; it was literally just one room. Um, but the amount of joy in that home with her and her husband and this one little baby, uh, through kind of broken, you know, different languages, you know, she barely spoke English. I didn't speak any Vietnamese, but there was just such happiness and positivity in this one little home, and yet, you know, I had been in some of the homes of these people who lived in enormous mansions, uh, and you didn't see that level of, of joy and family caring, and it just, it was this really powerful experience that I think kind of reminded me of um, how essential family is in particular, and how it's not about kind of the structure of the house, but it's really about the people uh, in the house and the relationships that they share and the connections that are fostered there that ultimately kind of creates the value of a home. So that, that was really, really impactful. That happened when I was like 21.
0: Wow. Dude, at, at such a young age, I feel like that's really insightful. I feel like a lot of people don't see the big picture. They Things like that go past them every day or happen around them every day, yeah. but they don't see it. What do you think it is that really uh, opened your mind to uh, this way of thinking?
1: Uh, I mean, I've, I've always kind of been somebody who just probes for the deeper message and stuff. I just kind of enjoy it. Um, but then I think truthfully, a lot of it came back to that, that semester at sea wave experience where, you know, I was sure I was going to perish and kind of got a second chance. And so you, you, you know, there's another mantra and chapter in the book called read the signs along the path. And I think for certain people, if you're looking for the signs they are there for others, they just kind of, you know, ignore it or they don't look for it and and they don't have the same experience. I enjoy looking for those signs and finding these moments of reinforcement. Um, and, and I think a lot of it was kind of dictated because of
0: having a certain death experience at a young age. Mm. Yeah. It's a, a blessing in disguise. <laughs>
1: Definitely. Exactly. That's a, that's a perfect. It was, it was well disguised.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So what's your most important daily ritual right now?
1: Um, I would say my most important daily ritual, uh, great question. I would say it's it's really just um, making sure that as soon as I come home, uh, I spend, uh, you know, like undivided time with my wife and my dog. Like, that is the most important part of my day in my mind. I mean, it's like pure euphoria when my dog kind of sees me come in the door and goes nuts. Um, but it's also this moment for my wife and I to reconnect. And, you know, we both are obviously in our own heads. She's working on, on her stuff. I'm working on mine. But... I think my most important daily ritual is that as soon as I come home, making sure that I go up you know, give my wife a kiss, spend time with my dog and, and just kind of ground myself in the fact that no matter what happened outside of, you know, the, the front door of my apartment, um, what it, it happens inside is actually the most important. Yeah. How about you? What's your, what's it. your most important?
0: My most important ritual would have to be meditation. Mm, yeah, now, not just I, I totally like not not just meditation, but actually making time just for myself. What I find is that if I'm not making time for myself, mm. I don't have enough energy to give to others. Uh, so yeah, that I, I, and this is what I need the most too, because I I overwork. Sometimes I'm burning the candle from both ends, you know. And I think yeah. uh, really finding time for yourself so you can recharge, to give your mm-hmm. best to the world and to those closest to you. I think that's something that I... Uh, I strive to practice every day i don't i don't actually stick to it every single day but i, I really know that my day feels more like a fulfilled day and, and uh, an accomplished Definitely. day when i do practice uh, yeah time for myself for sure
1: yeah i mean i i unfortunately i'm kind of in a rut i haven't um uh, practice any meditation in the last few months although I was in a good period before that but if you were to ask me what is the most important ritual that I'm not currently practicing <laughs> it would have been meditation so so I I like your answer I agree with it
0: yeah yeah and you know what actually meditation gets better and better the more that you do it so yeah like when you have that definitely. momentum I, I don't know man I, I transcend deeper I have way better experiences I have better clarity and I'm more creative. Yep. So. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things where you know you have to do it and a lot of people don't stick to it. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, me included. Hopefully, I've inspired you. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I'm going to do it as soon as we're done. Uh, that's the next thing I'm going to do. All right, so what's next for Pencils of Promise?
1: Uh, what's next is, is really focusing um, less on being a school building organization and more on being an innovative learning company. And so, you know, we're known for building hundreds of schools. We will build hundreds more, but we're really focused on the in classroom learning experience and ensuring that our students are really seeing significant gains, uh, not just by having a safe roof over their heads, but by having great and engaged teachers, supportive communities around them, you know, the right um, teaching methodologies and technologies in the classroom. So that, that's just really what's next. Um, and then, you know, in kind of even the shorter term, uh, through the holidays, we run a campaign called Season of Promise. It's uh, uh, really our biggest campaign of the year, and uh, we identify 25 select communities each that need a new school, and then uh, we, we, you know, rally our kind of individuals and communities each to take ownership over one of those schools, raise the $25,000, and um, transform that community. So we launched that uh, in the coming uh, in the coming weeks, and we'll run that through the holidays. And so the season of promise campaign is something we're really sucked on you know, building 25 schools uh, with some great people involved
0: yeah wow it just sounds like a whole uh, ton of all-round transformations coming up so yeah That's yeah, definitely hard. beautiful man so I just wanted to actually ask you a couple of questions on behalf of uh, some of the listeners so I actually had okay. uh, Wes Westcott he wanted to know what would your advice be uh, to give to parents of a nine-year-old who has an idea for a charity how would uh, you support her practically without totally running with the ball that's his question. Yeah,
1: great question. Um, so I would say when you have a nine-year-old like that, uh, they're going to be all passion. Uh, they're not going to have a lot of the tactical know-how. So I think that your job is to kind of divide out their various responsibilities, and you take on the practical know-how, and you let them power the passionate part. So you know, if if you actually do want to start an organization, I'd always encourage you to kind of seek out a local organization that takes on the same mission, and then allow the nine-year-old to. You know, have a piece of ownership over that. So if they're interested in, you know, uh, food health, find a local food organization and say, hey, can my nine-year-old run an independent campaign that will be supportive of your organization? This way, you don't have to go through the kind of paperwork and registration and taxes and all those things. Um, but you probably, you know, open up that door. Hopefully, get them to go on and visit the office. And then uh, when it comes to the, you know, execution of it, I think you kind of. You know, help them set up a couple things, but really let them run with it. And I think they'll learn a tremendous amount in the process.
0: Excellent. That's a great answer, man. So, yeah, where's Westcott? Put that into action. That's great. Now, we've got Joseph D. Bernardo who asks, What has been your greatest challenge and how did you overcome it?
1: Uh, I think the greatest challenge was, was just kind of getting over the fear uh, of starting. You know, I think a lot of people, they have these big visions of kind of grandeur of, at the end of the day, I'm gonna have done X, Y, and Z, but um, they don't know where to start, and they kind of get all concerned about all the steps along the way, and so there's this paralysis, and they just never get going, and so I think the the biggest challenge was literally just you know going to the bank and putting $25 in a bank account and opening up a bank account and saying, this is gonna be real, and now I'm gonna hold myself responsible and accountable to executing this, um, and so I always just encourage people you know, I think I shared it in my talk at Thrive, like what I call these one millimeter moments, because the one millimeter, you know, domino within 29 steps can, you know, topple the Empire State Building. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I always encourage people just like, get, find a way to start small. That's okay. Uh, but get started, because I think that's often the most fearful part for others. And it certainly was for me.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, remove the uh, analysis paralysis and take massive action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've got one more question from Keeley Belmont. She wants to know, what are your top three books? And it can be in any category.
1: Yeah, uh, that's an easy one. I mean, I, I read a lot of books, but uh, I have three that really stand out. So uh, my favorite book of all time is Shantaram by David Gregory Roberts. It's almost a thousand pages, but um, I read it while backpacking and I had plenty of time to read and it is, I mean, I savored every page. So Shantaram is my favorite book. Um, And then the next two, uh, far and away, would be The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho and then Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I think any one of those books can change your whole life. Um, And when I was writing The Promise of a Pencil, that was kind of the style that I was trying to emulate, was a book, you know, that somebody could pick up and, you know, read quickly, but at the end of that quick read uh, would feel completely different uh, from the way that they started.
0: Wow. Three powerful books, man. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you for answering the questions for the audience, too. I'm, I'm sure they really appreciate it. Oh, my the pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. And those books, we'll put them in the show notes, too. So if you uh, want to cop those books, you can get your hands on them just through the links. So awesome, Adam. Now, Adam, I always end the interview with this last question. And the last question is if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like wow um
1: that is really hard and really good question so if i had 30 seconds i would say um, life is a lot shorter than we anticipated it will be Uh, and so because of that i would encourage the world and every person within it to savor every single moment that you have and to understand that each and every single day you have an opportunity to live an extraordinary journey and then at the end of that journey, uh, you don't get to take anything with you. Uh, the only thing that remains is the legacy of the life that you've lived and the impact that you've had on others. So I hope you can you know, create a life that you're proud to have led. But along the way, make sure that you increase the well-being of others. And that will be a legacy that you will be proud of for generations.